0: open up a Bible to Psalm 66 today. This is our last summer psalms. We do this every summer. We're working through them. Uh, We're still on pace for 2028 to finish all the psalms. Uh, We'll see. Psalm 119 really slows you up a bit. Uh, So as we're getting here, this this psalm is, is this command to praise God, and it has this Telephoto lens kind of zoom component to it in the sense have you ever seen those videos that show the earth from outer space and then it starts zooming in and you can see like an entire nation and then it zooms in further until there's just one person looking up at the camera because somehow they knew it was coming. Uh, I don't know, but it's it's kind of that idea it is the process of this psalm as we work our way through it. And and just to give you a better picture of that, here's the outline that I did not get in the bulletin. Uh, verses one through seven. God of all, that's the wide angle, see the entire earth, right? It's a call for people everywhere to praise God. And then verses 8 through 12, that's the zoom in to the nation level, particularly uh, in terms of the psalm looking at Israel, God's people at the time. Uh, And here the command then is this narrower group of God's people. And then verses 13 through 20, God of one. and, And the idea here is it focuses in on this individual's worship of God. Uh, And and so we're going to read the passage in those three sections so we can keep it real fresh in our mind before we get to it. So uh, beginning with the first seven verses, if you will, follow along with me uh, as I read. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him, who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let us pray. Father, we have been made your children by the simple grace of the gospel, the love of Christ to sacrifice himself for his people. And yet, many of us have not always loved or believed in you. And we thank you for giving us faith. And Lord, for those who are present here today who, who deny you, Lord, who wonder if you really exist. We thank you for the presence among us. And I ask that you would awaken hearts and open eyes to faith. Lord, please enlighten minds today. Enlighten our minds to receive your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, sometimes I listen to a radio program called This American Life. Any of you heard of that before? A few of you? Okay, so it's a it's an old school radio program. They tell stories, and they tell stories really well. And, and, and this last week or so, when I was listening to one, it really caught my attention because uh, the radio show Ira Glass says he had, he had just recently been teaching at a place, or speaking at a place called Chautauqua in, in New York, and it caught my attention because our uh, our family with our good friends were spent two weeks at another Chautauqua this summer, which is the, the same idea, uh, only this one's on the shores of Lake Erie in Ohio. Uh, and if you never heard the word, don't worry, not many people have, Chautauqua, uh, at least in the sense that we understand it from the one we go to, is this walled-in, kind of fenced-in city uh, that functions kind of by itself. It's an area that, or an idea that was founded in the late 1800s by the, the Methodists, and the goal of it, when they set it up, was for physical, spiritual, and intellect intellectual growth, that it would encourage people to grow in those three areas. And so, <clears throat> anyway, the radio host, uh, Ira Glass, Glass, rather, he grew up in a, a Jewish home, but at this point in his life, professes atheism. And he says that after he spoke at this Chautauqua, he got into a car to go to the airport, and along with him, came, uh, the guy that was driving him was a retired Methodist pastor, and, and he became incredibly surprised in the drive as, as this retired pastor, this man who had spent his entire life proclaiming God's word, tells him, you know, I, I don't really believe that God's word is, is true. Uh, I don't really believe that it's true. And he couldn't believe that this man would say that. And and then he added this, which if you're a Methodist, is is no big deal. And I'm going to leave it at that right there. I thought that was an interesting statement, but uh, not my words. Uh, Anyway, though, their, their, their conversation continued. And the pastor says this. He says, and I'm quoting here, as he gets older, the literal words of the Bible seem less important to him than the big picture love your neighbor as yourself and, and love God above all, as if that's where it comes down to as the only important thing. And, and that's when Ira, remember Jewish-raised atheist at this point, says this, and I, I want to make sure I'm quoting him properly. He says, I totally get the love your neighbor as yourself part of that. Like, I can see how that can reshape just everything about how you treat others and really everything you do in your life in the world. But I've never really understood why is it important to love God above all. If you do what God wants and you try to be good, you try to treat others right, what difference does it make if you love God? What does God care? And then he adds a little more to that just a a bit later. He he says this, Why does God want us sitting down to tell him how great he is? Is he that needy? If some parent demanded that their kids, uh, Okay, I want you to sit down here and praise me for the next 45 minutes. If some parent did that, we would know that they were nuts. Now that probably bothers you a little to hear this, right? Um, C.S. Lewis actually asked this same question before, long before he came to faith. He felt that it was such an odd thing that here is God constantly asking us to, to praise him. And he thought, and, and, and this is the way he put it, it's, it's almost like God is, and this is his quote, like a vain woman wanting compliments. He couldn't make sense of this. As though maybe something was lacking in God that he so desperately needed someone to tell him how great he is all the time. Well, a couple of things to think of here. First of all, unlike parents and every single other person on the planet, um, God is truly worthy of praise. However, that's not the reason, not the reason that God commands us to praise him. It, it, it's not to fulfill something lacking in God that he's constantly calling us, commanding us to praise him, but rather something that is lacking in our own truly needy hearts. You see, C.S. Lewis, again, is helpful here. He, he, later in his life, after, after God had opened his eyes to see that Christ is the Savior and see the beauty of Christ, he, he wrote this. He said, We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep telling each other, uh, one another, how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. You get that? In, in other words, when God is commanding us, commanding his people, commanding the world to come and praise him, what this is is a gracious call to a, a fullness of joy and delight that we will not, we absolutely cannot find anywhere outside of the Lord Himself. It's a gracious call. And then, so here we find ourselves in Psalm 66, right? And this first section is this massive, all-encompassing call to praise the Lord. You see it there in the first verses. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious Praise. You see, what we see there is, is the good kind of universalism. It's universal in this sense, meaning that, that there is only one God, right? Only one true God, and thus He is the God of the entire universe. And so every soul on this earth has an obligation to acknowledge God and to praise God. So we move through this in verse 3, we're, we're told to declare to God, how awesome are your deeds. How awesome are your deeds. And, and we lose any sense of what that means in our culture because, uh, you know, the word awesome, right? We are quick to declare everything is so awesome. Lego song probably just got stuck in your head, right? That, that's the way it is, though, and it suddenly means pretty much nothing. So, such that, you know, we we've watered it down so much, you can hardly recognize that it even means something. See, the, the word awesome means to inspire awe. And now you're thinking, yeah, but what's awe mean, right? Well, awe is defined as this. A feeling of reverential respect. Then stop there, though. Mixed with fear. When you get deep down to that Hebrew word, it's that idea of fear. It's, it is standing before a lion, and there is no fence between you and him. It, it's... it's being in the room and, and gazing at the button that launches the nuclear bomb, it, it's that deep sense of, of the holiness of God. Where, where you truly begin to understand the holiness of God and his very real presence. That, that's this idea of, of God's awesomeness. Tim Keller has also said there, I said this. He said there's there's nothing more evangelistic than glorious worship. He's speaking in human terms here. But, but how you praise the Lord with words and, and a life devoted to God, don't just think corporate worship singing, but what your worship looks like it is a light in this dark world. And that's the idea that he's getting at here in verse 5 where we read this. Come and see what God has done. Come and see what God has done. He, he means what God has done in this sense among the, the covenant community is what he's talking about. It's a corporate nature here. He, he tells us of God's miraculous deliverance. You can see it there, right, in the, in the text. Uh, the, the Egyptian slavery as the way that God brought them across the Red Sea. And later, God leading them into the Promised Land across the Jordan River on dry land. These are some of the greatest stories in Israel's history of look at the amazing thing God has done for us. You know, we too can share stories of the awesome deeds that, that God has done among us. and um, talk about uh, a, a flat tire. Uh, the very first month we were here on my bike and the frustration of it ended up a relationship with a man who ended up finding us the first place that we were worshiping in, as we both were at the, at the bike shop way too early for it to be open. Um, we, we can talk about how, how, how the Lord returned Nicola to Kansas for college after years of learning the piano in, in a way that we didn't know was even possible. We were able to start corporate worship as a covenant community long before we ever thought possible. Uh, we could show you photos of Sam's car wreck. Was it last year or the year before? And then show you Sam sitting here today. Well, what an awesome work of the Lord among us. We could tell of uh, of God bringing Jeff Shore from atheism to joyous faith in Christ. We can tell stories like that. You see, the Lord has worked in our lives. He's worked among us. And, and so let us invite others, you know, come and see what the Lord has done among us. So we're going to move on then. We're going to move to the second section. I hope you've got your Bible somewhere close. You can read along. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 8 here. And just follow along. It says... Bless our Lord, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. You have brought us out to a place of abundance. First of all, you... Catch that massive amount of first-person plural pronouns throughout there. Uh, ten times in those eight little verses there, you see the word our, us, we. He, he's speaking in a, a communal way. In, in other words, it's not just that the God of the world, but he is our God. We, we are part of this, right? The, the general idea here then is that, that God, uh, of what's going on in here, is, is that God has recently rescued this community, these people, from something. And, and that's why in verse 9 they acknowledge even the breath of their lungs at this moment, that's a reason to praise God. In fact, if you're here this morning, breath in your lungs is the only reason you need to, to have a reason to praise the Lord. But you have... Many, many more reasons. Verse, verses ten through twelve then paint this picture of God having tested them and having tried, him, or tried them rather, and they compare the experience here. Right? These are not really good things. You're saying to being um, like fish caught in a net, to being trampled underfoot, to God taking them through fire and water. And in other words, this has been a very difficult time. They have gone through much pain, much suffering, much thing, many things they surely would rather have not have gone through. And yet, the Lord had a purpose. And that's the idea of being tried as silver is tried. You've likely heard this before, but the way that silver gets refined is, is by heating it up until it becomes melted. And then all the other stuff that's not silver rises to the top and can be pushed off. And the end result then is is pure silver. In other words, what we're seeing here is that these trials are to purify the the people of Israel. It's ultimately for their good, even though it's a very difficult experience. And these trials also conclude in what verse verse 12 refers to as a place of abundance. It's a reference to Canaan. It's a, a reference to the promised land. See, that's not unlike our own lives in the sense of, of trials today have, have purpose in our life. And we know that whatever pain we may experience, ultimately, in the end, our story if our faith is in Christ, our, 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 our story ends with our Savior being among our Savior in His eternal kingdom. Um, let's look at our last section. In case you're thinking this will be the shortest sermon ever, I'll tell you ahead of time. We're going to spend a little more time here. Um, because here the nation's... Uh, and, and the praise of the congregation just fades away. And, and as James Boyce puts it, he, he put it like this. He said, the individual psalmist himself remains standing alone on the stage. You see, here this focus uh, of worship now is, is on the individual and what worship looks like for the individual. And, and this individual is going to speak twice here. First, first he speaks to God himself. And, and secondly, he widens it to the individual speaking to anyone who will listen among him. And we're going to look at those in two little sections. So first, starting in verse 13, he says this, uh, speaking to God. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams, I will make an offering of bulls and goats. So you got to understand, burnt offerings, this is a unique sort of thing, this, this burnt offerings. See, because some offerings are, are what are called fellowship offering offerings. And, and those offerings, the idea is someone brings in the sacrifice. It's an animal. It's going to be slaughtered. It gets cooked. But by the end of it, they don't burn up all the animal, which means they get to eat some of it. They invite their friends, their family. It's a weird kind of come on over for this sacrifice slash barbecue and we'll have a party sort of thing. Um, Yes, weird, but that's the way it worked. However, a burnt offering was an entirely different thing in the sense that in burnt offerings, the animals were burned up completely. There's no party, no one gets to eat of it, and the idea here is this is a significantly more serious sacrifice that's made. And so this particular offering that we're talking about here would have been incredibly costly because you're looking at multiple rams, bulls, and goats in the way that he listed. This would have been something hugely significant. And, and he's making this burnt offering to fulfill a vow that he had made to God at some point in the past. Um, biblically speaking, vows are promises made to God for a particular answered prayer, the hope for one. And so something like this happened. And again, like this happened. It's not necessarily it, but an enemy was surrounding them and they expected to be defeated. And the psalmist prays to God, God, if you'll deliver us, I, I will do a give a burnt offering of half my livestock. Or maybe it's all his livestock. Some major sacrifice is what he's talking about. And we know that God does indeed deliver them. And so the psalmist now is keeping his vow. And, and these sort of vows, we, we see them throughout the Old Testament. You can learn a little more in Leviticus 22 or Deuteronomy 12 if you want to go see more about them. But, but maybe you're wondering then, should we as Christians also make vows today? And, and the answer is, well, if you're married, you've already made a vow now, haven't you? Um, you might not remember all the words of that, but you've, you've made a vow to your spouse, yes, but, but also to the Lord. If you're a, a member of this church, you've also made a vow, you're right? Uh, but, but really, we're, we're wondering, right? if we should make a vow to God like this one? And the answer is, you certainly can, but don't ever do so lightly. Because vows are for weighty, weighty matters. Vows do not guarantee that God will fulfill your request. A vow is not a payment if God does indeed answer that prayer. Uh, However, they do display how deeply we desire for God to answer a prayer when a vow like this is made. The Westminster Confession of Faith, it's our doctrinal statement as a church, as a denomination, uh, and it says this. It says of oaths, uh, oaths just being a different word for vow here. Uh, In chapter 22, section 2 says this, oaths are appropriate only in matters of weight and moment. An oath is warranted by the Word of God under the New Testament as well as the Old. And again, if you want to go look that up in 22.2 of, a, of the Confession of Faith, uh, it'll walk you through some more scripture to explain the reasoning behind that. So uh, now there are some well-known examples throughout church history uh, of people c- doing oaths, even beyond Bible times. You, you might know the story. Martin Luther, when he was still a, a young man, was traveling after he had finished uh, going through law school. The plan was to be a lawyer. And he finds himself in this terrible, terrifying storm, and, and he thinks he's going to die. And, and, and in that moment, when he thinks he's going to die, uh, he, he shouts out, just shouts out above, Help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. That, that's the vow he makes. And, and I know, right, you're really quick at hearing he didn't pray that to God. He's someone named St. Anne, whoever that is, right? Um, Here's the deal. At the time, he's a Roman Catholic, and he had been taught that what you do here is you pray to or speak to an individual saint who's dead, and that person will then take your request over to God for you. And I know it's messed up in a lot of ways, but at the heart, Luther made this vow to God is the way he's understanding it, right? This was his way to God. And Luther did indeed survive the storm. You probably already figured that much out. Um, But he survived it and he fulfills this vow by becoming a monk and and that's kind of the process whereby he becomes the spark that sets the Reformation on fire later. Uh, Another example, I I just remember this from years ago, a a sermon by John Piper where he was terrified of public speaking and I can relate to that. Um, When I first had to stand up in front of people I was terrified and so the story always stuck with me but in college uh, he was asked to say a one-minute prayer at the beginning of chapel, and and he thought he was just going to die from being asked to do this. And, and he says he, he prayed a prayer to God, Lord, you know, God, if if you'll get me through this one minute, I will never turn down another speaking engagement out of fear the rest of my life. And he says he's, he's done it. And, and it just shows you the weight of the fear that he had in that moment. Uh, but you, you, you hear these, and, and I just want to remind you one last time, vows must be kept. There are some nasty stories in the Old Testament where people make vows and then have to fulfill them because they didn't make wise vows. Uh, vows must be kept, so do not make them lightly. These are very weighty things. Um, so let's get back to the passage. Psalm. Uh, the psalmist in verse 16 says then to anyone who will listen, again, follow along, come in here, All you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. And there's one more verse, and we're going to read that in just a moment. But stay with me here. Here he's inviting, right, anyone who fears the Lord, anyone who will listen about how good the Lord has been to his own soul. It's this idea of giving a testimony in in sin, similar to to what we've been able to hear in the last year as Rodney's organized these these breakfasts and we get to hear from other guys in the congregation and uh, one of our missionaries came and did it once and just hear, this is what the Lord's been doing in my life or what he's done throughout the process of my life and these stories are so encouraging to hear. And so it's a bit like that, you know, telling them, you know, let me tell you what the Lord has done for my soul. And I, I remind you, though, that every single one of us who are in Christ, we, we need to, 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 to want to say this as well, you know, to others. Let me, let me tell you what the Lord has done for my soul. And yes, we have wonderful stories of rescued from illness or accidents or giving us friendships or jobs or so many of the blessings of the Lord. But let us also, let us especially speak to what the Lord has done for our soul, namely that he has set us free from the power of sin. He has redeemed us from the wrath that we deserve, granting us forgiveness. And so pray that the Lord would, would teach us to share more often what, what God has done for our souls. And, and I know we, we, we could expand that idea further, but, but, but you get the idea. Begin thinking through your life. What, what are things that I can share with people? Who are people I can share this with? Um, so then let's, let's look at verse 18 here. This is an interesting phrase here. And absolute full disclosure, when we're picking psalms throughout the year, as I'm reading through the psalms, I'll, I'll pick the ones I'm going to preach in the summer. And, and and this was one of the first ones I picked last fall. And, and the reason was this weird line there in verse 18, that phrase that says, cherished iniquity in my heart. Because that phrase, cherished iniquity in my heart, just, just stuck kind of semi-permanently in my brain. You, you ever find something where you're like, it's not that I intentionally tried to memorize this, but I just couldn't get that phrase out of my mind as I, I continued on uh, throughout the days afterwards. And, and remember, iniquity means sin, cherishing sin in my heart. Um, you know, and, and it raises that question, you know, what are, what are the sins that you verbally hate? You, you kind of just know you should detest them, but deep down you still just have a soft spot for these things. Somehow you want to nurture them. Now, um, I don't watch a whole lot of TV shows, but one that I've always like, liked since it came out is Stranger Things. I'm not necessarily recommending it to you because it is a, a scary show in a lot of way, but now, uh, there's this one scene, and I'm not ruining anything. You've had a couple years to have seen this if you are one of those people that are behind on it and watching it. Um, but there's this character, and you kind of know, there's this, there's this monster in, in the show, and, and as one season begins, the monster, there's a little baby version of the monster, and it's cute. And it's this nice little polywog, and this one character finds it, and he thinks, it's wonderful. This is my pet. I love him so much. And, and I can't help but kind of seeing that as, as this sin, because as the story goes on, his, his friends begin to recognize that's a monster you have there. And, and, and so he kind of pretends like he doesn't have it, doesn't know where it is, and, and yet he begins to care for this monster, feeding it and caring for it. Eventually it eats his cat and, and it starts to just become the monster you always knew it was going to be. And, and yet all the while, though, here, here he's been just cherishing this monster and, and hiding it from others. And in this sense, uh, you know, it's it, it's like us, right? When we cherish a particular sin. And, and there's this idea that that... That, you know, we need to just lay our hearts bare before the Lord and ask, Lord, what, what sin in my life th- am I cherishing? What, what sin that is a monster right now, but's going to grow into some big, massive monster in my life? And these are the sins that, you know, you, you might like repent of verbally. You know they're wrong. You feel guilty. But you have no intention of, of really mortifying, no intention really stopping or killing, destroying, getting rid of this sin. Some of the more likely candidates uh, of cherished sins are things like pornography or, or gossip or just complaining. You, you know, you probably said the phrase, I'm going to stop complaining, but let me just tell you one more thing. That's a cherished sin at that moment, right? Or, or maybe it's just long-standing bitterness at someone. I know I shouldn't be bitter, but I am. Uh, you know it's kind of this I'm making a place for this because I can justify it Uh, maybe it's some form of stealing stuff I I, I used to have a a program for illegally downloading movies and TV shows Uh, I justified it in my mind in a hundred different ways that it was easier to find things this way that I wasn't really stealing anything and so many other ways but deep down I knew that it was wrong and it was something that I kept telling myself okay I'm not going to download any other movies from this but, but then I would keep that program on my computer, right? You know, just in case. What? It, it, you know, it, absolutely cherishing sin in my heart. And so the day that I, I finally deleted the program was the day that I, I, I really stopped cherishing it and, and instead mortified that particular sin. See, if you're, you're struggling with cherishing sin in, in your heart, you, you might want to take a moment and remind yourself, no matter how much it might appeal, no matter how much like the, the cute little polywog it might look like, um, if you're not seeing it, that makes no sense to you. But, uh, you know, understand this, that sin caused the fall. The world is a mess with disease and hatred and brokenness and death because sin entered the world. And sin wants to bring ruin to your soul. You don't, you don't protect it. You do not cherish it. Rather, trust that the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Holy Spirit, it can be brought to light. It can be put to death. Now, there's one more thing I, I want us to see in this passage, and then we'll be done. I know we're going to a little long today. The, this passage ends with what's called a, a syllogism. Uh, simply put, a syllogism is... Um, a form of reasoning, right? Uh, I was a philosophy major so instead of taking real math, like oh, I know there's a bunch of math majors, I took logic. Um, right? Not real math. That's what that I've been told. Math. It is real math? Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so my real math uh, reasoning here then consists of a, uh, uh, the, the syllogism consists of this. A, a first true statement, right? One true statement. A second true statement and then a clear conclusion from those two statements for example uh people who love chemistry are odd true statement right <laughs> what <laughs> <laughs> one major yes well tim and veronica last week both said they love chemistry second true statement therefore tim and veronica are odd So you see how this system works, right? That's the logical way that it runs through it. It's it's just good logic. I'm sorry You're odd Um, and, And so the syllogism that's running through this passage here in these last three verses is 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 a really strange one because the first Statement is verse 18. Look at it. It says if I had cherished iniquity in my heart The Lord would not have listened and I know that sounds weird, but it's a true statement it's a true statement because, well, it just said it there. And secondly, because, and Isaiah 59, 2 says exactly that. It says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And then in the New Testament, the blind man that Jesus healed in 931, he's talking to the Pharisees, and they're in this argument, and, he, and he's reminding the Pharisees of some general truth from Scripture in his argument. And he says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And, and, you know, more specifically, as you begin to flesh that out, it's it's unrepentant sinners. But this could use some more fleshing out. But for for now, just just understand, it's a true statement uh, there made in verse 18. And so then the second statement is verse 19, uh, which says, But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer." And so then the conclusion of those two propositions, A, if I had held on to my sin, God would not have answered, uh, not have listened to my prayer. And B, God indeed has listened to my prayer, right? And so the conclusion most logically should be, thus I have not cherished sin in my heart. This kind of patting myself on the back. Indeed, I have not cherished sin and I know it because of the results here, right? Conclusion. But, but then look at verse 19, um, of the last verse here. Uh, 20, rather. Uh, Therefore, this is the conclusion. Therefore, blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. It's not the way that you think it should go. One 17th century pastor said it's expected that the psalmist would hear take the crown and put it upon his own head, right? I haven't cherished sin, yea, me. But instead what he does is he takes the crown and he places it... Where it belongs on the head of the Lord. Uh, the pastor then adds after that, I will seek to learn the excellent logic of this psalmist. That's a good encouragement to us. In other words, when we're growing in our love for God and our obedience to his word in day-to-day holiness holiness, when that's happening. Let us point to the one who has heard our prayer. Let us point to the one who has loved us steadfastly. Let us, you know, point to the one verbally placing this crown upon the head of our God, the one to whom it belongs. And so finally, I do want to bring us to a close here. The, the, The praise of Psalm 66. Right, It begins there, it ends there. It's all throughout Psalm 66. And, and the praise of this rises from God rescuing his people from a human enemy. That, that's what the psalmist in Psalm 66 understands. How much more then can we on this side of the cross, how, how much more can the rescue that God has accomplished for us upon the cross of Jesus give, give rise to our own hearts, to, to our own souls, to our own minds, to our own lips, to to want to just pour out praise for the Lord. Not just because he's amazing, which would be plenty for us to praise God, just because of his awesomeness, but also because the only reason we can see his awesomeness is because of what he's accomplished for us on the cross to bring about that redemption. And so may our hearts join The chorus of this psalm, may our mouths and lives sing the glory of God's name, as we've seen in this verse. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we ask that by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we would believe the gospel and then worship you, the true God, in in light of your awe-inspiring presence throughout creation and your ruling in our hearts and your sovereignty in the world in your goodness. Lord, Lord, give us hearts that desire to pursue your holiness as we worship you in all of life. And this we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.